Please open your Bibles now to the epistle of St. Paul to the Romans, and we are in chapter 3, and we're going to be in chapter 3 at least for one more week after this one. If we all do well and the Lord doesn't come back, uh, we will gather and hear again from here. Today, I just wanted to read verses 21 through 26 out of chapter 3. Please give attention now to this reading of God's Word. But now, the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. This ends the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father, we do ask today that your spirit who exhaled or breathed out this word, inspired it, would so breathe into us the power of it and the meaning of it. We pray that the Holy Spirit will illumine and enlighten our minds, that he will soften our hearts and make us tender toward you, receptive, open, teachable, responsive to the great truth of God's word. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Today we're looking at how the gospel works Last week we looked at justification, being justified freely by his grace. We'll talk a little bit more about that before we get into today's text. But what I wanted to bring up to you is that Martin Luther said, there's not a place in the Bible where the gospel is more um, compacted together than in these verses. There are some amazing gospel words in this text. Words like justification, words like redemption, like propitiation, and like demonstration are major facets and words that give us the meaning of the reality of the euangelion, that is the gospel, of Jesus Christ. It was Martin Luther who said the gospel is so precious that we must beat it into our heads continually. And even beat it into other people's heads because we're so quick to lose it. But in Romans 3, we have the heart and core of Paul's message about what God has done to put us forever right with Jesus. And that is justification. One of the elements of the good news about justification is the jury is not out. The jury has come in and the verdict has been delivered. 
And if you stop trusting in yourself and relying upon yourself to live up to the standards, if you give up any attempts at self-justification and all the strategies therewith, and you look outside of yourself, and by faith you Velcro, as it were. I got that on my, every day I pop these Velcros. I'm thinking, I need to Velcro to Jesus today. But if you, if you cast yourself into his mercy and in his arms, you are declared at that moment to be forever under his favor. He regards you as righteous as you can possibly be because he's given to you as a free gift the active obedience of Christ to the law. His perfect righteousness becomes yours, as Heidelberg says, as much as if you did it yourself. And so when you hear the voice of God speaking to his son at his baptism, and he says, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased, you get the same benediction over you from God because you're united to Christ. Now, we're not the son in the same sense that Jesus is the son. We're adopted children. But nonetheless, God is pleased with us. This is the uniqueness of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is this. Every other religion in the world requires you, in one way or another, to develop a righteous, validating performance and present it to that God, and he will either vote you up or down. Christianity is the only religion in the world in which God himself, in the person of his son, develops a righteousness for you and gives it to you freely in your empty hand. And that is radically different. And it's so powerful once it seeps in, once the gospel begins to work in you, producing in you faith, love, and hope. Christianity is unique in that it alone teaches that God alone prepares for us a perfect record of righteousness, a record through Jesus Christ, and gives it freely to us. So you are not saved by performance, but by faith in the performance and record of Jesus. Do you understand that? Everybody in the whole world wants to be validated. Everybody in the whole world wants to know that their life counts, that it matters, that you have a raison d'etre, that you are here for a reason, that you're not just in the world and in the way, but you actually have a purpose. You actually count for something more. And the only way you will ever get, you'll never get enough praise and applause from fellow creatures. Most of them are so jealous of you and me that they will do nothing but criticize and judge you and put you down. But the only one who can give you the validation that your heart cries out for every single day is God, through the righteousness of Christ, can declare you right. And that changes your perspective, your interaction, your relationships, it changes every way you relate to everything in the cosmos. The gospel is that powerful and that amazing. And so, because we have the per perfect record of Jesus, we can hold our heads high. We don't have to, as many Reformed people do, and I only know this because I've done it myself, is get out of this worm theology mindset where we're walking around all the time, nobody loves me, everybody hates me, 
guess I'll eat some worms. You know, you're just miserable. You're just down on yourself. You feel like God is disgusted with you, that there's always a black cloud between you and the Father. But once this comes home to you, you can hold your head up high and approach the throne of grace with boldness and courage. The gospel gives you a boldness and a humility at the same time that is both attractive and astounding. And only the gospel can give you this. The gospel is not fake it till you make it. The gospel is the reality that it has dawned upon your consciousness that what you've wanted all your life is wrapped up in a person. And his name is Jesus. And so that is what Paul is telling us in so many ways. He's not talking about faith in general. It is faith in the blood of Christ. But what in the world does that mean when he says faith in the blood of Christ? There are three words that help us grasp the meaning of the blood of Christ that we are told in this particular text. Now let me address something else. Here I'm preaching justification, justified freely, uh, that we have the validating performance record of Christ, this is my beloved in whom I'm well pleased, then the knee-jerk response to that from people who've been going to church for a long time but don't really get the gospel is this. Well, preacher, if you say that, why should I even obey God? That's called antinomianism against the lawness is what that is. And that's always the charge. Martin Lloyd-Jones says, if people don't accuse you of being an antinomian, you haven't preached the gospel yet. Because that's what it sounds like to the natural mind. But the reality is, once the gospel sinks in, once you're grasped by it, and once you trust in it, from the crown of your head to the soles of your feet, you would do anything to obey your Savior. You place no limits on what he wants you to do. And you hate sin. And what, Because why? Because it, it creates a separation. It creates a cloud in your relationship with Jesus. You lose your sense of acceptance in him, of being his beloved, of being his child, of being adopted into the family. And so a person who truly gets the gospel is revved up inside by the power of the Holy Spirit to want to obey Christ perfectly, 100% desirous to obey the law of God for the right motives. If the only thing that ever makes you want to obey God is you're scared he's going to punish you or because you're proud and don't want to be the kind of person who lives a dissolute life, then your motives are skewed. You've never had the right motives for loving God and the right motives for obeying God. And so with that said, let's get into these three gospel terms that are going to help us understand it a little bit more deeply. There are three words that help us grasp the meaning of the blood of Christ. We are told in this text that what we need, what we need, which is redemption. Look at the word redemption. What he does which is propitiation, and what it means for us, which is demonstration. Luther again says this is the greatest text for understanding the nature of the gospel. So let's jump right in this morning and begin to think through together these particular words. And they are powerful words uh, that really do illuminate the meaning of the work of Christ upon the cross. 
And so we've already seen that the ground of our justification is the righteousness of Christ, that we have been acquitted but also credited his righteousness. But the, the first thing the text tells us in verse um, 24, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption. And the Greek word for redemption, uh, redemption is apolutroso. Apolutroso. When you learn first year Greek, the first verb you learn in almost every Greek class I've been in, and I had four years of it, is the word luo. And luo means to release. And you conjugate the word luo. It means to set free, to let go, or to release. And so one way that the Bible helps us understand the nature of the gospel is through the reality of being released. And so the word redemption is a commercial term borrowed from the marketplace as justification is a legal term borrowed from the law court. In the Old Testament, it was used of slaves, slaves who were purchased in order to be set free. They were said to be redeemed. It was also used metaphorically of the people of Israel who were redeemed from captivity first in Egypt and then in Babylon when they returned back to Jerusalem from the captivity for Judah and restored to their own land. And utterly unable, we are literally and utterly unable to liberate ourselves there is a barrier between us and God. And that barrier between us and God is a sin debt. We owe him because we've sinned against him. And that debt must be paid. It must be cleared in order for us to have an open and free relationship with him. And so, the, uh, just so we were slaves or captives in bondage to our sin and guilt and utterly unable to liberate ourselves. But Jesus Christ redeemed us when he bought us out of the captivity by shedding his blood as the ransom price. He humbled himself and he had spoken of coming to give his life as a ransom for many. In consequence of this purchase or ransom rescue, we now belong to him. So what did it cost God to liberate us? It cost God the life of his son. He paid the price. He paid our debt on the cross. And this reminds me of the Old Testament prophet, Hosea. A couple of, a few years ago, I preached an entire series of messages on Hosea, and that book powerfully addressed real gospel issues for me. And so, you know who Hosea was. He was an Old Testament prophet, and God said to him, go again and, uh, well, no, that's chapter 3. He told Hosea to marry a woman by the name of Gomer. I don't know any women named Gomer today. If you do, help me. But I don't. And after this story, I don't think you'd want to name your daughter Gomer, so don't do it. But Gomer was a wayward woman. She was a prostitute. 
no doubt about it, probably a temple prostitute. These are women who worked at the temple of Baal. Southerners can make Baal a three-syllable word, uh, Baal, uh, but I'm just going to do it in one, Baal, or Baal in Hebrew is what it is. And so Baal, or Baal, was the fertility god. He was the one that brought rain in order that the people could have crops, in order that the people could make bread, in order the people could live. And so he was the rival god, the fertility god, and so they had temple prostitutes through which people would come to worship Baal and have relations with the prostitute in hopes that their life would benefit through this act. It would encourage Baal to see, send rain and thunder. You remember Elijah on the mountain, and there had been a drought for three years, and the prophets of Baal were there. They were looking for rain for fertility. And so people did that. More than likely, that's who Gomer is. And Gomer was not faithful to her husband, Hosea. She slept around. She was a woman who was obviously uh, way outside of what God called Israel to be, but he told Hosea, this was his calling to marry this woman. And the reason he married that woman was God wanted to say to his people Israel, you're just like Gomer. You're exactly like Gomer. This is who you are. And so he did it, and he bore a couple, she bore a couple of children. And uh, lo in front of their names means not. And so one of them means not my people. So Hosea could say about the child, not mine. That child is not mine. Bible's real technicolor. And so as a result of that, she eventually left him. And she left him and left him alone. And in chapter 3, verse 1, God says to Hosea, The Lord said to me, Go again and love a woman who's loved by another man and is an adulteress, even as the Lord loves the children of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love cakes and raisins. Hmm. So in chapter 3, the action switches back to Hosea's relationship with Gomer. But also God's relationship with his people is never far away because Hosea is to love Gomer as the Lord loves his children of Israel. Hosea is to enact and illustrate God's grace. And so Hosea was told to marry Gomer in chapter 1 verse 2 and now he's told to go buy her back. And this is a profound moment in the history of redemption where the Lord said to her, So I bought her for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a lethek of barley. And I said to her, You must dwell as mine for many days. You shall not play the whore or belong to another man. So will I also be to you. Now think about this. You're Gomer. I mean, you're Ho uh, Hosea. And you're told to go to the slave market. This is where people are sold in bondage. More than likely, she was standing up on a platform or a block, and she was completely unclothed. And the people were bidding on her. And so <laughs> Hosea paid what the text said he paid for her, and he took her, and more than likely he took something to cover her nakedness and shame. That's a picture of redemption and being enrobed, as it were, 
in the righteousness of Christ, pointing to the reality of his righteousness covering our nakedness. And he took her home and he told her, I want you to be mine. I want you to be faithful to me. Now, here's when the text finally came home to me. I said, well, that's God talking about the people of Israel. And all of a sudden, the Holy Spirit said, no, not just that. That's God talking about you. You are Gomer. Every time we fall into an idol of the heart and we worship and adore something more than we worship and adore Jesus, that's exactly what we're, having, we're doing in reality. And the enactment of Hosea here with Gomer is a beautiful picture of what redemption cost the son, his blood. We were not redeemed with corruptible things like gold and silver, but we were redeemed by the precious blood of Jesus Christ, a lamb without spot or blemish and delivered from the corruption of our own hearts. So we have been redeemed at the cost of Jesus' precious blood. And we've been set free, and our sins are forgiven, and our guilt is gone, and our anxiety is relieved. Now, I know people don't believe in guilt anymore. And I always say the guilty dog barks the loudest. And so when people start barking about guilt, I know they're guilty. <laughs> but guilt now goes under another term. Guilt goes under anxiety and depression. In our current secular worldview mindset of most people, if I'm anxious, I need a pill. If I'm depressed, I need a pill. And sometimes you do, okay? Sometimes you do. Sometimes that's God's means of helping you. But for other reasons, sometimes it's just you not recognizing that what your real deal is, is you're guilty. You're guilty before God, and you know if you have to stand before him, you will be exposed, and you know what you have done. And so you try to deny it, and you try to cover it up. You try to call it by another name. You try to blame it on everybody else. But Jesus Christ went to the cross, shed his precious blood to wash away and take away and erase, as it were, our guilt. He removed it through his work on the cross. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. And so that is one way that Paul explains what happened on the cross and the gospel. So he has redeemed sinners. The second word that I want us to focus our attention on is the word propitiation. That is how redemption occurred is through propitiation. Not a word you and I use every single day of our lives. Not a word at all. I doubt any of us have walked around talking about propitiation unless you're reading Romans and trying to memorize the text. But it is a good word and it's a word we need altogether. And so what are we talking about when we're talking about propitiation? The second word is hilasterion in the Greek, which renders or is rendered by many versions of the New Testament as propitiation. Many Christian people are embarrassed or even shocked by this word. However, because to propitiate, somebody 
means to placate his or her anger, and it seems to them to be unworthy of having a concept of God who is angry. They would say that's more heathen than Christian, and to suppose that he gets angry and needs to be appeased is out of step with the love of God. I want to tell you something. You love somebody, and somebody tries to hurt that somebody you love, do you get angry? You better well believe you get angry. If you don't, I don't want to know you. <laughs> if you don't have any more spine than that, if somebody hurts somebody you love, what? You will become angry at that. Why? Because you love them. And God is angry at sin. Why? Because sin destroys us. It rips our lives apart. You don't do sin. Sin does you. Numbers tells us, be sure your sins will find you out. And God is holy. God is absolutely just. He is absolutely pure. He is of purer eyes than to behold evil and cannot look approvingly upon sin. So something has to be done. Something has to happen where God will deal with this. And so a lot of people have proposed other ways of saying what propitiation means to keep from embarrassing themselves about God. And so they will use phrases like mercy seat. And it is true. In the tabernacle, or, and both in the temple, there's the Holy of Holies, and on top of the Ark of the Covenant, which contained the law of God, the two tables, and uh, Aaron's bud rod that budded, well, on top of that mercy seat was covered in gold, and it was a place in which on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, the priest would enter into the Holy of Holies. They always had a rope tied around his leg just in case uh, he messed up and God killed him and they'd have to drag him out of there. They had a real fear of the holiness of God, but he would go in and he would pour the blood of the sacrifice on top of the altar, therefore expiating sin. And so some people have tried to turn this into either expi expiation or into some kind of secondary mercy seat. But I do not believe that is what propitiation means, especially in Scripture. Some people say that it's uh, less than sophisticated, that we should drop the word wrath in relation to God. Instead, we should struggle to reclaim and reinstate the language by showing that the Christian doctrine of propitiation is totally different from pagan or animistic superstitions. The need and author and the nature of Christian propitiation are all different. Ever heard of Homer? Not Homer Simpson, but the Greek poet Homer. What's his last name? I don't know. I just know I read the Iliad in the seventh grade, and I've seen a movie about it between Troy and Greece. And so a princess was taken from one kingdom to the other and Agamemnon decided to go get her. And he got in a boat, and it was storming, and nothing good was happening. They weren't making any progress. Everybody was terrified. So what did old Agamemnon do? He took his daughter, offered her up as a sacrifice, and the winds turned and blew him right across the waters. 
And so some people hear a story like that and say, well, that's propitiation. That's some backward, fable, anachronistic, primitive, uh, blood and guts kind of stuff. We don't do that anymore. Yeah, we do. First, the need. Why is propitiation necessary? The pagan answer is because the gods are bad-tempered and subject to moods and fits and are capricious. The Christian answer is because God is holy and his wrath rests on evil and there's nothing unprincipled or unpredictable or uncontrolled about God's anger. It is aroused by evil alone and focused and it doesn't represent outrage. It's a focused wrath and anger. Secondly, the author. Who undertakes to do the propitiating? The pagan answer is, we do it through the offer of a sacrifice. We have offended the gods, so we must appease them. The Christian answer, by contrast, is that we cannot placate the righteous anger of God. We have no means whereby we are able to do so. But God, in his undeserved love, has done for us what we could never, ever do for ourselves and by ourselves. God presented him, that is Jesus. Jesus. He presented him as a sacrifice of atonement. John wrote similarly, God loved us and sent his son to be a propitiation for our sins. The love, the idea, the purpose, the initiative, the action, and the gifts were all God's. Now, some people say, well, God is wrathful, so Jesus had to be propitiated to change God's mind so that he would love us. No! A thousand times no. God so loved what? The world. The Father loved us. But the Father is God and he's consistent with who he is and sin has to be punished. And he bankrupt heaven by sending his only begotten son to be the sacrifice. You remember when God told Abraham to go up to Mount Moriah and offer Isaac his precious son as a sacrifice. And I'm sure Abraham was plodding along, thinking in his head, what in the world are you doing, Lord? Every promise you've ever made to me is wrapped up in this boy named Isaac, who's about 14 years old. You want me to take him up on a mountain and do what? Cut his throat, burn him up, offer him as a sacrifice. It's not a, to me, it's not amazing that God asked him to do it. It's amazing that Abraham did it. But he did it, and he took him up there. And as they got to the top of the mountain, he had the ropes and he had the equipment, and uh, Isaac looks at his father, and this must have been like a dagger in his heart when he said, Father, I see the wood, I see the preparations, but I don't see the lamb. Abraham looks at him and says, God will provide the lamb. And so as Abraham fastidiously must have been weeping tears beyond tears, tied his son to that pile of wood to sacrifice him. And as he raised his hand with the knife to plunge it into his son, God stopped him and says, Now I see that you trust me. And there was tied up in the thicket a ram, and he took the ram and offered him. But when it came to his son... The father did not stop. The father did not provide someone else. He gave his son 
for you to bear in his body everything that triggered and focused the wrath of Almighty God to punish sin in his son. Which is why we know that God doesn't punish us for our sins. He's already punished his son for our sins. He disciplines us, but he does not punish us. It's already been done. And so as a result of that, I, I, it's, it's hard for me to preach through this without getting a little overwrought. The nature of propitiation. How has the propitiation been accomplished? What is the propitiatory, boy, that's a word, sacrifice? The pagan answer is we bribe the gods with sweet vegetable offers, offerings, animals, and even human sacrifices. The Old Testament sacrificial system was entirely different since it recognized that God himself has given the sacrifices to his people to make atonement. And the given sacrifices to his people is a beyond the doubt that in the Christian propitiation, God gave his own son to die in our place, and giving his son, he gave himself up. He gave everything. Remember when Jesus was hanging on the cross? And there's seven things he said, seven sayings of Christ on the cross, but the one I want to focus on now is when Jesus cries out, Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why have you forsaken me? Because forsaking was part of the price to pay. It was part of the, to be abandoned, for God to turn his face of approval away from the Lord Jesus Christ. There Christ bore in his body the hell that we have every right to expect and to endure but for Jesus. And he took it into his body. And so because of that, it would be hard to exaggerate the difference between pagan concepts of this and Christians' concepts of this. But God gave himself to save us from himself. Let me repeat that. God gave himself to us in the person of his son to save himself from us, or from him. To save us from him and the judgment. And the last word <clears throat> is the word demonstration. So far we've looked at two of the words to describe the cross, redemption, propitiation, the cross was a demonstration, a public relevant revelation, as well as an achievement. It not only accomplished the propitiation of God and the redemption of sinners, it also vindicated the justice of God. He did this to demonstrate his justice, verse 25. He did it to demonstrate his justice. In order to understand the form which this demonstration of God's justice took, we need to note the deliberate contrast which Paul makes between the sins committed beforehand or previously, which in his forbearance he left unpunished, and the present time in which God has acted to demonstrate his justice. It is a contrast between the past and the present, between the divine forbearance which postponed judgment and the divine justice which enacted it. 
between leaving unpunished or passing over of the former sins which God which made God appear to people to be unjust and their punishment on the cross by which God demonstrated his justice. That is, God left unpunished the sins of former generations, letting the nations go their own way and overlooking their ignorance, not because of any injustice on his part or with any thoughts of condoning evil, but in his forbearance and only because it was his fixed intention in the fullest of time to punish these sins in the death of his son. This was the only way in which he could both himself be just indeed and dis demonstrate his justice and simultaneously be the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Both, as it were, justice, the divine attribute, and justification, the divine activity, would be impossible without the cross. Here then, are three technical terms that Paul uses in Romans to explain what God has done in and through Christ's cross. He has redeemed his people. He has propitiated his wrath. He has demonstrated his justice. Indeed, these three achievements belong together. Through the sin-bearing substitutionary death of his son, God has propitiated his own wrath in such a way as to redeem and justify us and at the same time demonstrate his justice. We can only worship and bow down and marvel at the wisdom, holiness, love, and mercy of God and fall down before him in humble, broken worship. The cross should be enough to break the hardest heart and melt the iciest one. Billy Graham, let me get a drink of water before I tell this story. <clears throat> Billy Graham, there we go. I'm back. In 1955, went to Cambridge, England, to hold a meeting. He had four nights. And it was on the campus of Cambridge University and people were up in arms. What are you doing inviting this redneck fundamentalist, dead from the neck up evangelist to come and preach to us at Cambridge? That was, to put it mildly, the response of the student body and the, t and the teachers at Billy Graham's coming. Now, this is in 1955. I was two years old. I don't remember it, but that's when it happened. So Billy Graham went, and he was intimidated. He relays in his autobiography, he says, you know, I went and I studied like I never studied in my life. He said, I studied all the theologians. I studied all the intellectuals I knew they were looking at. And I tried to preach in erudite and just impressive ways so that they would think I was a scholar. I was one of them. And he said, I did that for two nights and I fell flat. He said, on Wednesday night, I repented. And he said, I went to the Bible, and from Genesis to the book of Revelation, I preached 
on the blood of Jesus Christ. And he said, the Holy Spirit was with me, and I preached. And there were about 6,000 people in the crowd. Later on, Billy Graham met one of the students who was in the crowd that day. And he told Billy Graham, he said, I was there that night. He said, I've never heard anything like that in my life. It was electric. But he said, 400 underclassmen made a profession of faith at that meeting because of that sermon. God used it in their lives. Yes, we are saved by faith in the blood of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. It is sharp and powerful and two-edged as a sword, and it pierces us, and it cuts us asunder and exposes and is a critic of the thoughts and intents and motives of our heart. I pray today that if there's anyone here who has yet to look outside of themselves and by faith to trust in and to receive Jesus for who he is, their Savior, their Lord. And I pray for those of us who already know you, that our zeal would be increased, that our hearts would be broken and renewed, that our joy would increase to be loved like we've been loved. And this we pray in Christ's name. Now, Father, as we take this offering, we do so uh, anticipating our giving back to you a portion of that which you've entrusted to us. May we do it with joy and not obligation and fear. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.